Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last time, we compared the actions of Fredegund and Brunhild, with an eye on revealing the bias of Gregory as our main source. This week, we'll do a bit of clean-up, discussing some important events in the realm that continue some of the themes we've been discussing recently. Then we'll get to the main part, the Treaty of Underlo, in episode 57, The Treaty of Underlo. A quick bit of podcast housekeeping before we do our narrative housekeeping. This episode is actually pre-recorded. I'm off in Europe at the moment, checking out my options for PhD. Connor and I managed to get this episode done, but there will be a break next week as I'll still be gone, and perhaps the week after, depending on how my jet lag goes. Thank you for sticking with us though, I hope you enjoy the episode. Now, down to business. First, let's finish some of the Brunhild stuff we talked about last episode. I mentioned the return of some nobles to the court of Austrasia. This includes Lupus, the former Duke of Champagne that had fled after Brunhild had saved him from Ursio and Berthefried. In fact, it was Lupus's son, Godegasil, who had commanded Childebert's troops against Ursio and Berthefried, finally getting revenge for his father. The return of significant Brunhild allies like Lupus show the perception of her growing power was spreading across the kingdoms. Continuing with the theme of Brunhild's power, let's talk about Bishop Egidius. Egidius has been talked about a few times on this podcast, most significantly when a pro-Childebert faction of the army had forced him to flee after they had mutinied while on the way to intervene in a battle between Chilperic and Guntram. He was one of the leaders of the noble faction that had taken Childebert from Brunhild and controlled his court for years. Gregory informs us that somehow Egidius became implicated in the failed plot of Rouching, Ursio, and Berthefried. No prizes for guessing who might have arranged that. Anyway, he was accused of treason and sought to clear his name by approaching Childebert to sue for pardon, bringing many lavish gifts along with him. He managed to make peace with the king, which I'm sure was in no way influenced by these lavish gifts, and he also made peace with Duke Lupus. This apparently infuriated Guntram, who had also been wronged by Egidius's plotting in the past, and had exacted a promise from Lupus to never forgive the bishop, which was now broken. The move to break this promise shows that Brunhild and her allies were gaining confidence, and Lupus felt he no longer needed Guntram's protection as he once had. Now, next up on the quick check-in is the Visigoths. King Luvigild had died, and his second son, Ricarid, had become king. Since Guntram's aborted invasion and Ricarid's counter-invasion, there had been some raiding back and forth, mostly favouring the Visigoths. Luvigild had sent envoys to ask both Guntram and Childebert for peace, but both kings had ignored him. But with Ricarid now in charge, things had changed. The big thing, of course, was that Ricarid had finally fully embraced the Nicene Creed, 
and broken the royal family's long-running support for Arianism. This now put him on the same theological footing as the Frankish kings. Despite this, though, Guntram refused the requests from Ricard's envoys, making it clear that he blamed Ricard for his niece Ingun's death. The new king had sided with his father, and his intervention was key in getting Hermenegild to surrender. When the envoys approached Childebert and Brunhild, though, the two were much more forgiving, probably with an eye on using the Visigoths as another threat to keep Guntram penned in. They agreed to make peace with Ricard and forgive him for his part in the death of Ingund. The envoys even went so far as to ask for Childebert's other sister, Clodison's, hand in marriage for Ricard showing a continuing will amongst the Visigothic kings to bind themselves back to the family of Brunhild. This was politely refused though, with the royal pair suggesting they would be open to the idea, but they could not do such a thing over Guntram's objections. So there were limits to how openly they would act against his interests. The last thing I want to discuss before we get to the treaty is the return of the Bretons. Ever since the failure of Chilperic's campaign against them, they had been a problem, periodically raiding Frankish territory. This time, they attacked the Nantes region, which sits at the end of the Loire. Nantes was close enough to later often be considered part of Brittany, but its important position on the Loire made it important for Frankish control. The attack itself is pretty typical, and follows a familiar pattern between the restless Bretons and the powerful Franks. The Bretons wanted plunder and prestige for their chiefs and petty kings, so they raided and looted the region around Nantes. Guntram amassed an army in response, and it marched towards Brittany. The Bretons, Unable to stand against the might of the Franks, agreed to apologise and pay lip service to their nominal overlords in Neustria, and pay compensation for what they stole. This is one of those conflicts that takes on an almost ritualistic pattern. The Breton leaders needed to be seen to be challenging the Franks to burnish their own authority, but they knew that they couldn't actually fight them head on. The Frankish kings needed to make a show of forcing the Bretons to submit, but they knew they couldn't actually forcibly subdue them thanks to their rough land and fighting spirit. So the sides agreed to pretend that they were settling the matter and then go about their business. This is actually much the same for many warlike people on the fringes of bigger kingdoms that are too much trouble to conquer, like the Basques in the Pyrenees. Now, let's get to the big stuff. The Treaty of Andalo was negotiated in 587. It is the treaty I mentioned last episode between Childebert, Guntram, and Brunhild. And it is worth delving into for many reasons, but let's start with a couple of obvious ones. First, Gregory was at the negotiations and played a large role due to his strong ties with both Childebert and Brunhild and Guntram. Second, 
Gregory writes out the entire text of the treaty, making it one of the best preserved sources from the time, and a goldmine for information. The Treaty of Underlo had one clear goal. Despite their alliance, Childebert and Guntram's interests and expectations kept clashing and causing conflict. A few years ago, this would have been less of a problem because Guntram was willing to throw his weight around and demand things rather than negotiate with his nephew. But the rebellion of Gundervold, the troubles with Neustria, and the campaign of consistent pressure mounted by Childebert and Brunhild had worn down Guntram's capacities. He now needed a written agreement to protect himself and relieve some of the pressure on him so that he could focus on other issues, instead of constantly worrying about Childebert and Brunhild. So, what is in the treaty? Well, quite a lot actually. It starts with a promise of friendship and a commitment to avoid conflict between the three signatories, Guntram, Childebert, and Brunhild. Then it moves into practical stuff. First is the settling of a long-running dispute between Guntram and Childebert over Sigebert's former lands that the king had seized from Charibert after his brother's death. In return for Childebert finally acknowledging Guntram's control over the majority of the lands, he was given control of several disputed cities, including both Tours and Poitiers. This is not an insignificant concession. It is actually a pretty massive one. Childebert might have agreed to put aside his claim, but he got several of the cities that were a big part of it. Their next big article was about the succession. Childebert had just had two sons, so the continuation of the Merovingian line was assured. The article promised that if either king died, the other would inherit his kingdom, an agreement that obviously favoured the much younger Childebert. There was also later a part that ensures that should Childebert die unexpectedly, Guntram would adopt his sons. So whatever happened, Childebert's line was set to inherit two of the three Frankish kingdoms. The only caveat in this was Guntram's daughter Clotild. She got a special article all to herself, designed to ensure that when Guntram passed, whatever lands or anything else that he had given to her would remain hers, and Childebert would officially act as her guardian. A carve-out in the treaty, just for the princess, showed the importance of Merovingian women, and implies the massive amount of wealth that had been bestowed upon her. Continuing on this theme is one of the most important parts of the treaty. In two articles, King Guntram first agrees to take Queen Brunhild, and the other royal woman in Childebert's court, into his guardianship and protection. Then, he and Brunhild hash out her claims to her sister's bridal gift, called a Morgengabe. I very briefly touched on this last week, but this section is incredibly important. Not only does it show the apparent end of the feud between Guntram and Brunhild, it shows just how scared of Brunhild Guntram really was. 
because of the amount of concessions that she extracts from Guntram. Much like her son's claims to his father's old lands, Brunhild had been making noise about her murdered sister's former lands. To be clear, according to the law, these lands would probably rightly chill Perrix again once her sister had died, and Brunhild's claim to them was tenuous at best. The Morgan Gabe Chilperic had given Gelswinth was also famously generous, so handing it all over to Brunhild would have made her fabulously wealthy. Guntram may have prevented this in the short term, taking all but one city for himself, but the agreement to prevent Brunhild claiming the lands only lasted as long as he was alive. Once the elderly king died, she was free to renew her claims. This is significant. The last major parts of the treaty deal with the movement of peoples between the two kingdoms. Guntram and Childebert agreed to force any Ludes that had abandoned their master to join the other king to return to their original master. This was an acknowledgement of the way Childebert undermined Guntram by allowing men like Childeric the Saxon, from a couple episodes ago, to have shelter in his court. This practice was now banned. Both kings agreed to not take unfaithful Ludes into their service, but also agreed to keep their borders open and allow the free movement of people between their realms. This is the bulk of the treaty. The rest is fairly inconsequential, or just invocations of God and religiosity, to underline the importance of these promises. As I said before, there are several important points in this treaty. First, the focus on cities and their incomes as the division of the realm shows that while the kingdoms were coalescing into more cohesive states, the kings still saw their lands in the old-fashioned manner of cities and incomes. This was the way things had been done since Clovis, and it was losing importance, but clearly still had importance at the time. Second, the part Brunhild played is impressive. She was not just a part of Childebert's entourage, the text of the treaty makes it clear that she was a co-signatory alongside the two kings. About a third of the treaty is also all about her as well. That's a lot. A large part of Guntram's push to get the Austrasians to agree with him in writing was clearly to rein in Brunhild. This is an implicit endorsement of her extraordinary role in the realm. She is now on a Fredegund-type level, and there is really no precedent for the power that these two dowagers held. Clothild had been powerful, but it was not a practical power, more a clever use of her reputation and influence. Fredegund and Brunhild had cities and incomes, official positions, and obvious hard power. They had created something new. Third, let's take a second and talk about Gregory's inclusion of the entire text of the treaty. This is rather extraordinary. 
Ancient historians did not cite actual sources. They mostly just said who they had heard it from, and mostly they didn't even bother to do that. Gregory is working in this tradition, as we've discussed before, but his use of actual sources is truly groundbreaking. The treaty is the most obvious example of this, but he does it several other times in his histories. It is not anywhere near modern historian levels, but it is an important step in this direction, reinforcing the idea that Gregory is less of a chronicler and more of a proto-historian. And we love him for it. The last thing to discuss is the importance of the treaty as an acknowledgement of the changes in Frankish rule. Can you imagine Clovis or Clothar making compromise treaties with other kings in their era? Guntram and Childebert were firmly in the transitional period of Frankish kingship, and Frankish rule would only continue along this path we see here, becoming more formalised, more bureaucratic, and more legal in nature as we move into the late Merovingian period. Now, that's it for this episode. A shorter one after last week's mammoth discussion of Fredegund and Brunhild, though still important stuff. Next episode, when I'm back from Europe, we'll talk about Gregory's diplomatic visit to Guntram on behalf of Childebert, and see some of the consequences of these events that we've been discussing over the last couple of episodes. See you then. <laughs>